It's been a week of witch hunts unfolding, or not, between a divisive story about Aziz Ansari and Republicans pleased to release Russia-related FBI memos. It's a weekend of marches between the March for Life and the Women's March, and it's apparently a year full of stupid between allegations that our president demanded to be spanked by a copy with a copy of Forbes magazine by a porn star, Democrats threatening to shut down the government, and apparently the kids are all eating Tide Pods. I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth, and this is The Political Pregame. Don't have a Tide Pod. Have a drink with us instead. After this week, you'll need it. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today, we're drinking my Spicy Bloody Marys in honor of witch hunts, and also more importantly, because Tiana and I are both getting sick and figured the spice would kick anything out of our systems. I hope that despite yet another chaotic news cycle, everyone's been able to manage to get through the week. I know that I'm excited to go to the Women's March this weekend in downtown LA. However, Tiana says that under no circumstances will she attend it with me. So I actually haven't gotten an answer yet on why from Tiana. So Tiana, how about you provide us all with an explanation here? Okay, not under no circumstances. I've attended these sorts of protests as a journalist before. But okay, here's my beef. Here I have two cent- I have two central concerns with the Women's March. One is what is the purpose? And the purpose two, is they're branding it as wait, power to the okay, polls. Okay, okay, let me let me finish. One is what is the purpose? That should be the that should be the obvious concern with any march because, for instance, like even today was like the March for Life, which is the very conservative um, anti-abortion march. And even then, I think you could argue like, what specifically do you want out of that march? But the Women's March is a much bigger problem. Who does it rep- who does it represent? It calls itself the Women's March. But it doesn't act on behalf of all women. In 2017, in January, they came out with a tweet that said, or they came out with a statement that said the platform was specifically pro-choice and they would distance themselves with any pro-life organizations that tried to associate themselves with it. Its national treasurer, no, its assistant treasurer is Linda Sarsour. She is a Palestinian-American Muslim racial justice advocate and rabid anti-Semite who was referred to Ayan Hirsi Ali, a survivor of female genital mutilation and one of the greatest speakers, I believe, on Western liberalism alive today. She said that she should have her nether regions taken away on Twitter. She's someone who openly courts anti-Semitic rhetoric under the guise of acting as though she's defending... um, Palestinian or Muslim rights, and she also um, she also doesn't mind being correlated with other rabid anti-Semites like Louis Farrakhan, and I mean the whole every co-chair of the Women's March it's closer to a rap sheet than a resume. The people who they defend they defend Asada Shakur who's on the FBI's most wanted list, and they hashtag it as. Hashtag sign of resistance in Asada's honor. I don't understand why we're celebrating murderers and criminals and domestic terrorists. So I guess here's the thing. I don't blame everyone who goes to the march. My sister is going with you. I blame I, I blame the people behind it who are far more insidious. And I mean, that's just the people. I'm not even talking about the purpose. Empowerment, whatever. But the fact that we're all acting like The moment to rise up to empower all women, but actually just select women is because Donald Trump is president. Yes, I kind of hold offense to that. Okay, and so here's why I completely disagree with you. Um, For a number of reasons. Wow, that was a big tangent. But one, I definitely would not categorize the Women's March as a problem. I think despite, you know, the divisive 
rhetoric that many credit Trump with having. The one of the amazing things that have that has come from the Trump administration has been people banding together against huge social issues. I mean, basically last year's Women's March was credited, uh, the Washington Post credited as most likely the largest single day demonstration in U.S. history. And I think any time when, when that many people are allowed to get together peacefully uh, with virtually no conflict and no adverse effects, how can that not be great? I think as a society and as an American society, it is only better when people become politically active and take a stance on issues and become civically engaged because voter turnout in the states has been notoriously poor. And so when you have people that are now feeling part of this bigger movement and being able to come out to these things and people who have maybe never voted before, one thing that I really credit the Women's March for doing is on their website, there's actually a tab in which you can click on it. It says voter registration and you can register to vote. And the title of, of this year's Women's March is called Power to the Polls. It's seen on, on the Women's March website. So basically the ethos behind it is to encourage people to come out and vote in 2018 in which, okay, so for most Americans, if it's not a federal election, it's essentially irrelevant. Let's be real. Uh, a lot of, there's very, very poor voter turnout for congressional elections, Senate, um, anything in between. And so with this movement, piggybacking from last year's largest single day demonstration in U.S. history, this can only be good. And I know that maybe I'm saying this is good because I'm a Democrat and for Democrats, it's only better when everyone comes out to vote and is informed. I know there's a lot of people on the Republican side of the aisle, to be quite frank, that would prefer some voters to stay at home. I mean, for the people who wanted Roy Moore to win and those who endorsed him as a candidate in Alabama, I bet you they wish that some of those African-American voters stayed home that day and were not registered to vote. So the fact that the Women's March is doing this, I think, is amazing. Okay, so your point about the leaders of the march and, and, and the organizers... I bet you tomorrow when I go, if I took a poll of 100 people, a very small percentage would know who the organizers are. Because this is far beyond the leadership. It's about the movement itself and what it is represented far beyond, what, one, two, three people at the helm. I think to women, to men, to anyone who's allied with this and feels empowered by this movement and, and as something that they can go out and become very politically active with, that this is something that is far beyond the resumes and the histories and the ideologies of the three people at the top. I think this is about not only power to the polls and voting, it's about any issue for any group or any person that feels marginalized. And I think that can only be great for society and people. But, okay, you talk about people feeling marginalized. And it's the reason why, and I know that we'll get to this in a minute, it's the reason why I'm very supportive of the Me Too, mov of the Me Too movement. This is not a movement that wants to embrace all women. I mean, even in 2017, they flip-flopped on whether sex workers were included or discluded from their unity principles. How can they not have a consistent op opinion on whether... Uh, it's if, it, if you brand yourself as a women's march, you have to represent all women, period. There is no, there is no covenant that you sign that grants you your womanhood for political reasons or for non-political reasons. Okay, it's, so... It's, I'm just saying, when the women's march account sounds closer to the Hezbollah than to any sort of, uh, like, rational third-wave feminist account. I mean, half of what they describe is just basically anti-Zionism. And I know that their whole argument is, oh, but it's intersectional. If the issue is getting people to the polls, 
then at that rate, we should just be looking purely at minorities because they're the ones who are underrepresented in the polls. And when you speak specifically about Alabama, white women didn't didn't discourage Roy Moore. It was the evangelicals not voting for Roy Moore, and it was black Alabamans voting for Doug Jones. So let me ask you this. You take issue because their Twitter has produced these stances in which seem not inclusive, right? Right. So their Twitter account is run by what? One, two, three people, maybe even a social media team, whatever. What about the millions of women that came out to march? Are they are they representing that Twitter account? Because they're not tweeting from it, right? So myself is going, am I eh, like a, a close to Hezbollah? No, absolutely not. But I feel as though I'm represented there and I can go there and show my support along with many other like-minded females and males and anything in between that, that will be there. And to go to your point, so... Earlier, you made the point on, you know, them not representing all women and, and mainly from the point of they have kind of not included those who are pro-life. Is being pro-life anti-woman? And I'm not saying it is, but I'm, I'm directing that question to you. Well, I know a number of pro-lifers who consider themselves the absolute platonic ideal of being pro-woman. And the argument, I know, like, the hashtag that was trending today at the March for Life was love saves lives and saying that if you show sympathy towards another woman who finds herself in an unplanned pregnancy, you can be the person to bring another, like, life into the world. So, okay, I I, I do, okay, so I would say the overwhelming majority of people who are pro-life believe that life begins at conception. And the overwhelming majority of people who are pro-choice, people who are pro-choice believe that life does not begin at conception. They believe it it begins when there's a heartbeat or when a fetus can feel pain or when they're sentient or when they're born. But the point is not at the same point. And I think the difficulty with the abortion argument right now is that both sides are operating sort of in bad faith. Not bad faith about themselves, like falsely representing their own opinions, but I think lots of people who are pro-life assume that pro-choicers are just pro-death, and I think that lots of people who are pro-choice just assume that pro-lifers hate women. Now, as with all movements, I do think that there is a small minority of people who have just sort of, like, hitched onto the tails, onto the coattails of the pro-life movement and are really using it just to control women's sexualities. But I do think that most people who are pro-life genuinely see an embryo as having the same moral value as a fully-fledged adult human being. So, I... I think it's just difficult because right now we are operating not just in echo chambers from like a media perspective, but logically are not even having debates in good faith about this. Now, I consider myself to be pro-life, but I think there are a couple of distinctions to make. One, you don't win any arguments, you don't win anyone over, and you're probably a bad person if you blame poor women or even just women in unfortunate circumstances who were being responsible and find themselves with an unplanned pregnancy. You don't win any arguments, and you're not certain you're certainly not making a moral victory for shaming the woman for doing what she felt like she needed to do. Instead, what I would like pro-lifers to discuss are actual viable ways of preventing the pregnancy in the first place. And I know that I think Dana Lash will call this choice before conception, and I fully agree with this. I think it's why Republicans need to A, focus on a bipartisan bill that makes adoption easier, and B, focus on bills that make contraception over-the-counter. Focus on making it more widely available outside of avenues like Planned Parenthood, which also have abortion facilities, but so that way you don't need to fund an abortion facility in order for a low-income woman to get subsidized um, birth control. 
Yeah, and although I'm pro-choice, I don't disagree with you on that argument. I think if we can limit the amount of abortions that are even that even have the chance to take place, i.e. through means of contraception, through birth control pills, anything of the likes, then of course that's only going to help solve the issue on both sides. How could like pro-choicers if if there's less women having unwanted pregnancy, how can we really be angry about that, right? Yeah. But the issue is that at this point in time that is not the reality and that's not realistic. There isn't a universal reasonable access to contraception and pregnancy preventative measures of that nature because there hasn't been a bill put in place like the one that you're advocating for. So then you have to look at, okay, given the present circumstances, what is, you know, in air quotes, the right thing to do, right? Because if women, especially in low-income communities, are not able to have access to birth control and therefore they are becoming pregnant maybe at a higher rate and therefore maybe are having abortions at a higher rate because this is an unwanted pregnancy, perhaps for a multitude of reasons that can't support the child, whatever, then how can you fault them for that? But then how can you also say from the pro-life point of view, well, no, they should still have this pregnancy, even though there was not really any measures that were accessible to them to prevent themselves from being pregnant to begin with. And so when you look at the Women's March and how they say or how they've distanced themselves from pro-lifers, I think it's important to almost flip that argument on its head and look at pro-lifers and say, have you guys not done enough to distance yourself from the ignorant voices that often speak up and the highly religious voices and, and, and those kind of arguments that, that come about? Because I'm sure people would be very sympathetic to your argument and, and understanding as I am, because I, I can understand that and I can get on board with that. But I'm not necessarily sure if it's the Women's March's fault for not having that inclusion or if it's the fault of pro-lifers from not distinguishing that important difference in people within that category between those who believe in birth control and those who believe in almost no preventative measures and still want women to have these pregnancies. I mean, okay, I will agree that I think that pro-lifers should be equally vocal about things to do for women who either find themselves in that position or how to avoid that position in the first place. That being said, I do think there's a media issue, that the media does demonize anyone who is pro-life as hating women, and it makes it really difficult for the, for the rational voices to rise above the noise. Because, I mean, I know, I, obviously Twitter feeds are selectively edited, you know, but I see all the time notable conservative female voices who are who view themselves as feminists describing things they've done. I think it was Ali Stuckey, who's now of CRTV. She just went to, uh, like, basically a maternity clinic for women who found themselves in, like, unplanned pregnancies and, like, was helping them out there. So I think that there are people who are actually trying to help out these women who are in these positions in the first place. I mean, I'm dedicating a semester-long research project to figure out what measures are, from an econometrics perspective, most influential in decreasing unwanted pregnancy rates. But I... I guess the fact that the Women's March is willing to wholesale disqualify anyone who not only is pro-life, but even people who are Zionists or people who are actively pro-Israel, and while they boost up the personas of people like Louis Farrakhan, of people like Asada Shakur, even mourning the death of uh, Castro... I just, I, to me, it seems like they're clearly making choices about who is in and who is out. And who is in honestly just seems like extreme le leftism. 
I think if, 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 if the Women's March wants to be the, the leftist Women's March, it can be that. If it wants to be the all-women's march, it can be that. But to me, it seems as though it's chosen the former over the latter. I mean, so on their website, I, I, I do understand your point and where you're coming from. On their website, in fact, though, they do market themselves as being a bipartisan movement and whatnot. But I can see how those on the right side of the aisle, those who are conservatives or libertarians, could, could somehow feel left out. But I only can really see how they would feel left out on the pro-life, pro-choice debate. And what I would like to say for any conservative who is debating on going tomorrow or debating on even if they should support this or not at all is if, okay, so if you're coming from the perspective of Tiana in, in, in the fact that, okay, yes, you believe that pregnancy begins at conception, however you believe in a woman's ability to choose these products to avoid that conception from happening in the first place, in a way, you're kind of pro-choice. Cause I agree. Because, I, I fully because, agree with this. Because you're you're pro you're pro choosing t- to have these products that that can prevent that pregnancy and that maybe inevitable abortion. Abortion, but the issue is if the choice is not present, then that is extremely binding. Yes, and luckily, okay. I mean, if I were to say, what could President Trump do to try and appease? Both sides, because I mean, he's maybe saying, not he's, defund Planned Parenthood. No, okay, no, no. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's here's if Trump made if Trump signed into law an abortion ban at the twenty week mark, while in that same bill also made contraception over the counter in all fifty states, I would call that an incredible success. Mia Love is already Mia Love, the um, the Republican representative from Utah. She already put, she's put, she's had a bill on the House floor, or she's had a bill to the House that just consistently goes ignored. Republicans are the ones who repeatedly are trying to make contraception over the counter. They, and once it's over the counter, the price of drugs decrease. I think it's something like 70%. I don't believe that it is Republicans who are repeatedly trying to do that. I can find the names. I'm, Avery, I'm going to Google. But are there enough influential Republicans who are doing that is the issue, right? Because the most influential Republican, aka Donald Trump, the leader of the entire administration and the White House, he is the one writing executive orders to do the very opposite of this, right? So, and, and then you see Speaker Paul Ryan. Do you see him advocating for for women to have contraceptive, um, contra- contracepti- okay. contraceptives over the counter? No, you don't. Let's, let's yes, you sure. see these lower level Republicans with not as much influence, and maybe this new wave of Republicans, these younger females and males, doing this. But you don't see it at an impactful enough level. Because so this, is, this has do- to come from the bottom up in the Republican because, Party okay, and because, infiltrate that branch. Because right now, we, Trump isn't even serious right now about a Trump, about a twenty week abortion ban. Right, 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 right now, we get serious about is immigration. He's serious about the wall because he knows he needs to come through for his base. I mean, let's be sure to differentiate between salience and between opinion. Cory Gardner, the Republican from Colorado, Kelly Iote, um, all Republicans. But and hardly even, anyone's heard and then, of them. And then, and then even Carly Fiorino, when she was running for president, said it's time for over-the-counter birth control, which will drive down prices and increase availability. But she does not hold true. elected office currently. No, but, but she, I mean... She was a major. Vo- I mean, she's spoken at CPAC multiple times, ran for president. So I'm. So I guess the thing is, I mean, right now we haven't because I think the abortion debate does more or less exist in a vacuum on both sides because you have people on this extreme left who say, "Okay, tell me this. Do you think that a fetus that is 
so people debate where the viability of a fetus begins. Some people say it's like at like the 20 week mark with new science, but like at the 30 week mark, 100%. Do you think that fetus should be aborted? If it can, if it can physically grab a surgeon's hand while it's being aborted, or if it can totally feel pain, if it can actually cry, do you think that fetus should be aborted? For myself personally? Yeah. I believe that there are a lot of factors that go into it, right? So if I were to get pregnant tomorrow and I happened to not believe I could support this child, I did not want the pregnancy. But otherwise, there was nothing wrong with my baby. There was nothing that would adversely affect me or impede my health or threaten my life. I believe that potentially the fetus should be aborted before there is pain to the fetus itself. Before okay, the at, the ve- at the very least, you hold However, the rational if position there is, that needs but, to be aborted but before there should pain. still yes. there should still be the ability for people to choose because if there is a situation in which, okay, there's a 50-50 chance if you're going to survive if you have okay. this pregnancy, but the thing right? Is, what are you going to choose then? Democrats aren't even talking about that, though. You're talking about, like... I believe they okay. are. No, no, okay. The overwhelming majority of Americans believe that abortion should be legal through the first trimester... And then as soon as you hit the end of the first trimester, public opinion drops off wildly. Most people are operating in the three-month frame because they just don't know how strongly to feel because they feel, oh, if she's poor. But I think you can also only make that decision when you're in those shoes. It's so hard to arbitrarily talk about it. But, okay, I I guess the issue is that Democrats, right now, I think a lot of the voices, like not, again, not the silent majority, but a lot of the loudest voices honestly discuss... Planned Parenthood with a reverence that feels religious. And they discuss abortion. Shout your abortion. Like, that was, like, a hashtag. Not like, oh, this is, like, a necessary evil, but it's a positive good. In the same way that what would later become the Confederate South began to discuss slavery. After a while, at first it was seen as, oh, necessary evil for our economy. And then the people who would eventually create the Confederacy discussed it as a positive good. So I think the issue is that the silent majority of people think First trimester, it's ambiguous. I don't know. I wouldn't do it if I were me, but, like, who am I to choose? But you have people on the far left saying a fetus has no rights until it's literally born. And then you have people on the right, and then I think you have a lot of people on the right who don't have a lot of understanding for how women get into these circumstances in the first place. So I think just the people who are leading the dialogue... They have no overlap in terms of even trying to understand each other, and there is a lot of argument in in bad faith. But I believe that those that are leading the dialogue and and those that are actually in a position to do something about the dialogue, a.k.a. those who have the ability to vote on legislation and bills, those people are not to the extreme left. Those Democrats are not to the extreme left in which, oh, on the last day before you are actually going to deliver your baby, you should be able to abort it. That's not the rhetoric. Yes, there's going to be crazy people on both sides of the aisle, on both opposite ends of the spectrum, but those aren't necessarily the people that are actually going to have influence over these laws. People are always going to have crazy views. Look at neo-Nazism, like look at all of that stuff, right? But I believe personally that the Democrats that are in Congress right now in the Senate and, and whatnot aren't taking that extreme of a view. And I think while there is no proper universal access to birth control and contraceptive measures, that the pro-choice stance is kind of the only necessary one to take. Because if you don't give 
a woman basically an option to even choose if she's going to be pregnant or not with contraceptives and not having them, then you're just binded. And it's it's like a catch-22. I perhaps I consider myself an idealist, but I think that we can live in a world where every child is wanted. I mean, think about it. Think about it. We, we lived in a world once where no one read. Then we had massive amounts of communicable diseases. That's not the reality, though. But it is. Social progress is a thing. It's in. I mean, I think right now we're looking at this as at a 15-year window. That's what we're thinking about. What about in a 300-year window? The, who hasn't had a massive increase of quality of life in the last 100 years? In the last 50 years? If you consider what the poverty line could buy you in the early 90s when we were born versus what the poverty line could get you today... I mean, you can get an iPhone if you're living at the poverty line. You have so much more. So, I, so I'm just saying, I think we just need to think bigger. And I think we need to think less divisively. We need to think bigger on this issue. Yes, I want to protect the lives of the unborn. But I also understand that making something illegal, the same reason why I don't think we should make guns illegal, they don't go away. Instead, they're, then, they're only in the hand, then they're only in unsafe hands. I disagree. Just would like to say that. Continue, though. <laughs> I, I, I just think the reason why I'm against making most things illegal is because I understand economics works and I understand how black markets work. And I think that you can be anti a thing and understand that making it illegal will only make it more prevalent and more dangerous. So let's work on the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is often poverty. And the root of the problem is often a lack of education and a lack of access. But to get those out of poverty, you need government systems. You don't need less government. And that's where we disagree, but that's just because I'm an ardent capitalist. But, okay, I, I, I would like to back up or move forward, however, however you view it, and talk sort of about the Women's March in conjunction with Me Too, which are different movements, but Me Too has been hitting the news lately because people have been referring... I, we all knew this was coming. We all knew there were going to be some people who would call it a witch hunt no matter what because they were just waiting for the moment in which it was politically expedient. But now it seems like that, that moment has finally come. And I'd sort of like to offer the conservative defense of Me Too. I know I've had a lot of people who I'm friends with, people who I've written for the same publications as, a lot of people discussing Me Too now in the harshest of terms, saying, Weinstein's over, we don't need it, it's done, this is just a war against all men. And I understand where they're coming from, but I think that they are wrong, and here's why. How is it a witch hunt if the witches are real? You don't need to think the Aziz Ansari story should have even ever been published, and I'm, I'm, we'll get to this in a moment, to realize that there are still so many women who are finally feeling empowered to talk about empowerment. The reason why I was not a huge fan of the Women's March, in short, was that I don't think it actually empowers all women, let alone even some of them. I think Me Too is actually quite powerful. Me Too is not about, yes, all women, yes, all men. It's about specific victims of workplace sexual harassment and sexual assault feeling empowered to speak up against it and actually right a wrong. So you can disagree with these and sorry story without realizing, I mean, right now, Larry Nasser, it's not even receiving... I barely, I'm not seeing an uproar about this on my Facebook feed. Larry Nasser was the USA Gymnastics one of the official team doctors um, for like the last decade and a half or something. And right now he's on trial for being other than a complete Pedophile. human piece of garbage. Yeah, basically molesting half of the world-class gymnasts or half like the world-class American gymnasts from the last decade and a half. And so right now there have been, I think, 140 victims 
that have been precisely identified, people need to go to jail with this story. But the only reason why it's finally making the news is not specifically because of the Me Too movement, like the hashtag, whatever. The hashtag doesn't mean that much other than maybe getting other women to speak up. But it is a moment. It is a cultural awakening that, no, I don't think that one out of every five guys on the street is a rapist. What I do think is that there are powerful institutions in play. And mind you, to all of my friends and anyone who's listening to this on the right, mind you, these are often credibly left-wing power structures, such as universities, Hollywood. People have been trying to shut us down for years and in private are acting like total perverts and predators against these poor, unsuspecting women and girls in the Larry Nassar case. I wouldn't say that that is predominantly on the Democratic side of you. I think you, okay, look at a Roy Moore, right? Yes, but, but and, and, and I'm very glad that Roy Moore was ahead to roll in this situation because I think that, I mean, I think there were a lot of reasons to oppose him from the get-go, but I'm glad that that undid him. I think Me Too and sexual harassment is nonpartisan. And period. as it should, I, I agree, I agree. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, before women on the right say, this is just a war on all men. No, it's not. You know what? If you are a man who behaved well, it is not a war on you. If you are a man who aggressed in a threatening way a woman, then yeah, maybe you should be scared. And I don't, and we, and I think, I think if you think about this really uncritically, and this is probably the most liberal I'm ever going to sound this podcast, women have been scared of their conduct for years because either you're too much of a prude and you're a bitch or you're too nice or you're too flirtatious and all of a sudden you're a whore. You can smile at someone the wrong way and we've been judged our entire lifetimes. If men understand, and and I'm not saying that either conduct is total. I'm not saying that either the way men have been perceived or the way women have perceived are totally correct. I'm saying let's average them out. Let's say everyone needs to have a little bit more personal accountability, which I think brings us to the Aziz Ansari story. And and uh, this ties back to the Me Too thing. So I think it is totally possible. In the story, it's basically about this girl who goes by the name of Grace. The account was told by Katie Way at Babe.net. So she's anonymously called Grace, and she describes going on a date with Aziz Ansari. And at this point, if you're listening to this podcast, you've already heard the story. But the, the reason why the story has been so controversial is because she doesn't allege that Ansari physically held her down or hit her, anything like that, or that they were working together, had a professional relationship. It's basically, it begins as a very consensual encounter back at his apartment But then he starts taking things way too far, way too fast. She tells him to slow down, and he repeatedly keeps on trying to amp it back up. So I think it's possible to say the second time he starts amping things back up, she should have left. Yes, women should also be accountable for their behavior. But so few people are asking why he couldn't have a little more control over his behavior. I think the point of contention that I have with everyone who's saying that this is a story that didn't deserve to be told is the part where she says, for the past 30 minutes, or or for 30 minutes, I kept on trying to get up and move around out of the apartment. I think that if you're a young girl who's at all in, like, a contemporary dating culture, you understand what it's like when a man sort of physically is kind of, like, barring you out of a space. And yeah, she should, we should be teaching girls to be a little bit less afraid to, like, tell the guy move the F away, I'm leaving. But the reality is that's not the case and not all girls feel that way. No, no, And I think why, so people are asking, why was this story even major in the media? This isn't sexual harassment, all of these things. And I think the reason why this story took off is because it provides a very chilling tale of something that has hit arguably closer to home than just these grandiose sexual harassment claims that have come out from multiple women against these high-powered celebrities. I think it has told a very chilling tale 
about a situation that unfortunately most females who are currently or have been in dating culture, regardless of even if that is in same-sex relationships or heterosexual relationships, it's told a story that a lot of people can in some way relate to. And that's an awful thing to be able to relate to and to be able to say. And tying it into the Me Too movement, I think that the Me Too movement is great. It's great that people can, you know, you've seen even very high profile celebrities who should have all the confidence in the world, but have only really necessarily come out with their stories against these high profile men because now they feel this almost sense of camaraderie or that people have their back and that all these yeah. women who are, who are along with this hashtag and movement have their back. Great. But I think, and I'm a, I'm a huge supporter of the Me Too movement because I hope that it transcends beyond those who can put the hashtag on Twitter and everyone see it because yeah. they have hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of Twitter followers and of people who can promote that message, right? So I'm a supporter of the Me Too movement for multiple reasons, for all of the reasons that, you know, serve to empower women or anyone who has been a victim of sexual harassment to feeling a sense of security and camaraderie. But I don't want to see the movement stop there. I don't want to see the movement stop at those who have this big voice. Because the reason why the Me Too movement is so big is because it's been catapulted by all of these celebrities, right? And all of these sexual harassment stories that have come out have been about these celebrities, right? But And there's such little research on it because every other woman has such a small voice in comparison, or not a small voice, but a small platform in comparison, that I would love to see a study done or numbers on as a result of all of these stories coming out in the media about all of these high-profile people, what has the effect been on your average ordinary people and people reporting sexual harassment claims to police forces or or to HR boards at whatever company they work at, right? Because if the Me Too movement only serves the people that are celebrities, which we don't know yet because there are there is no research on this, but if it only serves them and it and it doesn't encourage people who can't hashtag Me Too and everyone sees it and then they feel that people have got and also their not back. All survivors want to share their pain. Yes. Yeah, so if it doesn't reach those people and inspire them, then really what good is it doing? I and so I think an important thing for the for the leaders and these influential women that are that are heading this movement is to is to focus on okay so we've reached the women in Hollywood for the most part how do we reach the average everyday person and how do we change this culture i mean you know you look at oprah's speech from the golden globes and she says that she wants it so that no one will ever have to say me too again great but how are we going to yes. do that? And we haven't seen that yet. Yes, I fully agree. And so this is where I have two points. One that I think you'll obviously agree with me and one where I think that I, I think I'm speaking more to our conservative dissenters. So, okay. So first is, is institutional changes, like realizing that places like Hollywood, places like USA Gymnastics, places like universities are very much top-down structures that are far too interested in PR, protect people of a certain amount of brand identity around them, people like Harvey Weinstein, whose name recognition just brings a lot of money. Um, I think that there's going to be institutional change that needs to be reformed. It's, again, the reason why I think Betsy DeVos is absolutely correct to uh, to reconstruct Title IX, but to make it so that way, pe- so that way survivors are allowed to cross-examine 
their rapist or have a lawyer speak on their behalf. So the one thing is institutional change. The second one is an attitudinal change. And this is something that, okay, so... Um, Harry Kachatrian at Daily Wires, or he usually writes for the Daily Wire, he wrote a piece on his personal website, and I think he has a section that sort of nails it, and why I think conservatives especially, those of us on the right who believe that, yeah, laws matter, but they also, but also personal conduct and self-responsibility is more important. So he says... Um, He wrote a piece today, and it was The Damaging Effects of Normalizing Aziz Ansari's Flavor of Feminism. And um, what he says is that the spread of of far-left feminism in today's culture has cultivated the latter, the latter being um, talking points, or actually the talking points, while dismissing the former, actually respecting the opposite sex, as toxic masculinity. It turns out the gregarious, gentlemanly conduct that deep down all women covet in their male counterparts is an inseparable component of masculinity. It's what separates good men from sleazebills like Anzari. The far-left feminist cabal's inane crusade on masculinity has blurred this distinction. And I totally agree. It's the reason why I always try and criticize feminists whenever they say all men are a part of the problem, all masculinity is toxic, is because when you smear all men, it makes it really difficult to differentiate between someone like Anzari, who I would hope that all of us, even though he didn't rape her, he didn't sexually assault her, the fact, his behavior, I'm hoping that we would all teach our children and teach our friends that it's unacceptable. That is not the same as a good man holding, holding open a door for a woman. And I think it's very easy to, like, we make fun of, like, oh, the Mike Pence rule. We make fun of people who are more traditional. And I'm not saying everyone needs to live that lifestyle. I'm not saying you need to wait until marriage. I'm not saying you need to be a hardcore Christian or an Orthodox Jew. But can there be an understanding that some level of gentlemanly chivalry is better rather than worse? I don't even necessarily think it's about being traditional or chivalrous. It's about being respectful. Yes. Right? Yes. And so in a lot of cases, people have missed the mark in that regard. But what I would like to see to tie this back into the Me Too movement, what I would like to see happen is for the Me Too movement to, I guess, develop a bit of a softer edge, if that makes sense. I think obviously to platform this movement and to get it mobilized and on this huge stage where it's recognizable by everyone. You have to come at it hard. You have to be direct, right? But now that everyone knows about it, you know, the real change comes when people can listen to each other. And and when both sides, those who are somewhat guilty and are somewhat not, can feel not safe, but can feel that they have their guards down and are able to listen and be receptive to change, right? So what my worry is, is that this Me Too movement will come to be perceived by a lot of males as almost like man-hating, the same way sometimes hardcore feminism does, which like, is that the goal of feminism at its root, at its base? No. But that is kind of the bad rep it gets, right? Yes. And I would hate to see this movement get that bad rep because then no one's going to be listening and no change is going to be made. The same way that when you feel attacked personally, when someone's attacking your personal views, the natural human reaction is to get defensive, shut, get defensive, shut that external voice off and, and go into your shell, right? We can't have people doing that. We have to have a rhetoric developed in which 
okay, maybe some of this behavior was something that was dealt with in the past and was brushed aside, although not acceptable, but now we're reaching a point where no, this is not acceptable, but we are not going to absolutely vilify you and destroy you for behavior that was viewed, at least by men, as something that was okay to do to women 20, 30 years ago, right? The new line has been drawn in which, no, we are putting our foot down, this is not acceptable, but men have to be able to be to feel comfortable enough in which they can be receptive to this change and understanding and not feel like every person is going or every male is going to be under the new spotlight and with a with a red flag or laser beam pointed at his head. Yeah. Yes, no, I agree. And I, and I I think there's a not only a generational divide, but there's kind of like a cultural divide. I think a lot of the people who are saying this is a witch hunt are people who have been out of like who've been out of like the dating scene for a while. Or, like, or we're married really young. And the reason why I say this is that I think if, when we describe these incredibly nuanced situations like this with Grace, it's easy for them to, it's easy for someone who hasn't been in a situation like that to be like, wait, I'm reading this and I'm confused. What specific rule did he break? It's not a rule. It's about respect. It's about if clearly if someone's sort of like closing in on themselves and like not enjoying themselves in like a sexual encounter, you should stop. And anyone would know this if you've ever like, Any interaction with a person on a non-sexual level, if someone's, like, super uncomfortable with something like you're doing, you should, it should be evident, especially in a physical context, you should stop. It's not a rule. It is, it's not a clear line. It is about respect and it is about enthusiastic consent. It is. And what I'm very happy about with this Me Too movement and this Time's Up rhetoric is that if it wasn't blatantly obvious before that you should not be treating women this way, which absolutely it should have been for every man no woman on such a broad level should have to relate to this Aziz and Zari's story yeah. so incredibly. But if that wasn't abundantly clear before, which it absolutely should have been, it's definitely damn clear now. Yeah. And that is the one good takeaway. Or not the one good takeaway, but that is one good takeaway that that we can all take away from this. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, to segue into our last talking point for the evening... There is a government shutdown being threatened, if you didn't already know, um, in classic dramatic fashion, as we've had in politics lately. Uh, Basically, to give you a quick synopsis, if you're not caught up to date, um, so Democrats are threatening to shut down the government because they've kind of taken this hardline approach in terms of getting a Dreamers DACA solution passed. So... Basically, the government needs to come up with a new spending bill that needs to be passed or else government will shut down. And so uh, the government has been in talks all day today, going into extending into Friday evening with still not a result had yet, because if they don't come up with a solution tonight that people can agree on and you can get enough votes for, government is going to shut down. Now, there's been small pushes to be able to, okay, let's extend the budget for another few days until we can find a solution that's amicable to both sides. There has also been a short-term spending bill unveiled by congressional Republicans um, earlier in the week that did not give, you know, Chuck Schumer what he wanted on Dreamers, but it did uh, reauthorize the Children's Health Insurance Program for six years, uh, and that would extend the uh, the government to work until February 16th. 
uh, which that is a pretty decent win for Democrats. Uh, Children's Health Insurance Program, in case you've forgotten about it, it was made famous by that classic Jimmy Kimmel skit back in, I believe, December, wherein he brought his kid out on stage. And essentially, Chip insures politicized. close to 9 million children across the United States who otherwise would not have great access to health insurance for them to be able to have health care. So that's a win, but Democrats want more than that. I personally don't blame them, although a decision needs to be made by March. It doesn't need to be be made by this week. Yeah, so precisely on that note, I think right right now, I, I don't know why Democrats are building themselves into this hole. I think it's because the rhetoric against resisting Trump has become so overblown. So you have almost 9 million American citizens who are covered by CHIP, and that expires today. Democrats can choose to 9 million of our citizens or 600,000 people who live here and who we should be looking out for their beneficial interests. But they are an American citizens, and they have another two months to come out with a negotiation. As we were discussing last week, they could do a compromise that essentially codifies DACA into law, and in exchange, Republicans get wall funding, E-Verify, all that, increased ICE enforcement. So my thing is, why wouldn't they just sign? What, what do the Democrats have to gain here? I mean, it's not as though shutdowns really change public opinion on, any, on anything. And and if anything, Chuck Schumer, when, five years ago, when Ted Cruz was pulling the exact same crap, was was saying how insane would it be that Ted Cruz would shut down the government over something as auxiliary as Obamacare. Whereas now, they're doing this about DACA, which they have another two months to negotiate on. I think Democrats haven't tried this hard line of an approach before, and with Trump, you know, he's unpredictable, right? So... I think this is a play to see, okay, will this work? Um, In fact, what was arguably the most surprising to me is, so uh, Chuck Schumer met with Trump today to try to discuss this and and find some sort of common ground with getting DREAMers, you know, reauthorized or whatever you want to call it. Um, After the meeting, Trump uncharacteristically had actually a pretty nice politically correct tweet. He said, excellent excellent preliminary meeting in the Oval with at Senator Chuck Schumer, working on solutions for security and our great military together with Mitch McConnell and Speaker Ryan. Making progress, four-week extension would be best. So when he references that four-week extension, that's when I was talking about that extends CHIP for six years, reauthorizes it. However, it does nothing to help the dreamers. I don't necessarily believe that government's going to shut down. I think if anything, they are going to decide tonight to at least extend government for another few days and see what happens. But the thing is, you know, it's easy to put something off. Okay, we'll deal with it in March. We'll deal with it later, right? Well, when it comes to March and you really have to make a decision it has been put off for that long, then what's going to happen, right? And so there's a push now. Let's get this done. Let's get it out of the way. And honestly, why shouldn't a decision be made? What's the big issue? It's, it's difficult because I don't know... There is no long-term strategy here other than opposing Trump. And that's, to me, how it seems. Because Trump's already shown that he is a lot less of a hardline on him. Uh, he, he does not—the the mistake people always make with Trump is assuming that his, that his positions outside of economic protectionism are not malleable. Trump is obviously very—like, he will want the wall in as a word, you know? But Trump already said he wants it to be a bill of love. He'll be easily he will easily succumb to a DACA exchange, but or, or to a bill that enshrines DACA as long as he's given a little bit of something. 
But to me, the grandstanding to say, let's just shut down the government. I mean, let's just, public opinion doesn't care that much. I mean, Ted Cruz shut down the government in 2013 and Republicans won the midterms. So in the end, I'm not going to pretend like, oh, this is like a stake in the heart of the Democrats, self-inflicted. But and and furthermore, I mean, I am an economic libertarian. I'm perfectly happy with the government shutting down forever. It's not as though and <laughs> first of all, when when the federal government shuts down, it's eight percent of like the government that essentially stops receiving funding. And if that's what it takes to send a message, so be it. I mean, but but is there a message? Is is there a message if nothing is affected? It's not as though our police and our military are no longer paid and social security checks are no longer sent. I think the messages from Democrats hey, work with us on this, give us this, and we'll work with but you Trump on something else. But Trump was doing else. it until Dick Durbin leaked the shithole comment. Was he doing it? There's no way to know. He called the bill an act of love. He was basically saying, give me wall funding, give me E-Verify, and I will give you DACA. So then there's no reason he shouldn't approve this. Because he's not going to give away... the. Uh, He's not going to give it away for free. He's not going to give away the only bargaining chip that he has right now. Or not the only one, but it is a major one. Right now, what he has is a great bargaining chip. This is what frustrates me so much about government is that, and I mean, it's kind of the ethos behind our podcast to begin with, but government works best when both sides can work together. And anyone can get on board with that statement that I just made. How would you not want government to work efficiently because, I think it's, because it's only a waste of taxpayer dollars right yes, you as someone yes. who believes you know taxation is theft right <laughs> what do you say that like it's a joke <laughs> but you as someone who believes that right so the taxes that we do have that are going to government like let's use that to the best of our ability and the most efficient way possible so the fact even and frick i know this is ideological but the fact even that People or an administration, no matter if it's Democrat or Republican, because I know both sides do it, that they have to hold on to a bargaining chip just that's something as influential as 800 plus thousand because that is dreamers the way, because that and is, their livelihoods is just because so is, absolutely And what about the 9 million chip recipients? It's so infuriating. So well, don't hold on to it as a bargaining chip. Let's work together, right? So what I have kind of rendered from the Democratic point of view is give us this and I think they will be more amicable on a lot of other measures. And, you know, obviously we're not in these meetings with Schumer and Trump. We don't know that. But that's what I would like to think the strategy is. I Like, I, I think in a very idealistic sense, sure, you could think that. But, I mean, they'd be dumb to give away DACA for free. Get something from it. Because that's everyone wants DACA. Or not everyone, obviously. And Coulter doesn't want DACA enshrined. Obviously, the alt-right doesn't. Not that they're the same, but, you know. Um, but I think... If we all want to work together, we do it in one bit. It's the same way if I were Trump trying to sign an abortion bill, I would say limit it at 20 weeks and get over-the-counter contraception at the same signature. Well, I think along those strategy lines, Democrats have to come up with something that is lucrative to Republicans if they do really want these dreamers and something that's beyond threatening to shut the government down. Yeah. I mean, by the time this podcast comes out, maybe there will be some sort of decision made. Um, Certainly, I would hope by the time our next episode comes out next week. So we can come back at you guys with that when when we're back to you next Friday. Otherwise, what will we do with the government shut down for a whole week? God <laughs> willing. <laughs> All right. So also, in other exciting news, we have officially been accepted on iTunes. You can find us by searching the political pregame. So if that's your usual go-to with 
listening to podcasts, subscribe, rate it there, and we will be automatically downloaded into your feed every Friday. Uh, Very exciting news. Again, as always, uh, you can tweet at us at Avery Hogarth or at Tiana the First. And um, can't wait to be back with you guys next Friday.